This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Ideally, you don't really want to be super strict for all your life. That is an unsustainable outcome to look for. Again, in the spirit of body freedom, mindset freedom, and all that. So you want to be able to have it where you can do, I call it 80-20. You're losing weight in such a way that you're building a foundation of healthy eating habits. You're building the routines so that 80% of that, when you get to maintenance, you can do it. You don't have to think about it. That's freedom in your mindset. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about gut health ingredients. We'll find out about the five principles of achieving successful and sustainable weight loss. We'll discuss preserving the seasonal bounty. And lastly, we'll explore indoor forced flowers for the holidays. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceutical by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular guest on this show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? good, Jamie. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure. So, you know, everybody's, you know, notionally back to work, back to school, and that creates, you know, people get anxious and they feel it in their gut. And then everybody starts thinking about their gut health. And when you say gut health, I think a lot of people will default to probiotics, but there's so much more going on than that, isn't there? For sure. You know, what most people in the alternative health industry thinks is that path to good health is really through the intestinal tract. And there's a good correlation and there's a good reason why people say that. Because the gut is one of the most misunderstood, I think, organs by people. First of all, the gut is an entrance pathway to a lot of bacteria that gets access to the bloodstream. Secondly, we have a big gut microbiome, which helps keep us healthy, even though it when we say microbiome, we're talking about bacteria, mm-hmm. right? Then most people, as they grow older, everybody suffers from not being able to digest food properly, meaning that it just sits there, etc. right? So it's, it's a big area. And what I would like to basically talk a little bit about is to go through some of this, the things about the gut and dispel some of the myths that are associated with the gut and just tie things together. Hopefully we can do it in 15 minutes. All right. right. We'll set the timer and we'll go for it. Okay. Okay. 
Let, let's talk about the digestive process first. Sure. All right. As we grow older, and I can attest to that, back in my younger days, I can hit the buffet, I can eat till I can't walk, and they will have to wheel me out with a wheelbarrow, but I, I never suffered any pains of indigestion, etc. Mm-hmm. Today, if I do that, I'll be paying for it. Right. And what that implies is that as we grow older, our bodies do not make as much digestive enzymes as we had when we were younger. Okay. So a lot of us supplement our enzymes, can take supplemental enzymes to help with the digestive process. Okay. Now, one of the things with digestive enzymes is that because we in the West here, we eat a, a wide variety of foods and not all digestive enzymes are equally made. What people don't realize is that one of the first things that people think about is that, oh, as we get older, we don't have enough hydrochloric acid in our stomachs, so we need to put some in our digestive enzyme product or in our digestive products. Mm-hmm. Whilst it is true we make less hydrochloric acid, hydrochloric acid really is not as important as we think it might be. Oh. Yes, because one of the things that we don't realize is that most of the digestion does not occur in the stomach. It really occurs in the small intestine. Food sits around in the stomach, meh, half an hour, tops, right? You can't digest a full meal in your stomach, right? The only thing that gets partially digested in the stomach really is proteins. And what the hydrochloric acid does in the stomach is that first, it hydrolyzes protein. And when I say hydrolyzes protein, what it does is that it disassembles the protein and makes it on coil, etc. And what that does, it allows the digestive enzymes to have access to certain chemical bonds between the amino acids, okay, Mm -hmm. in the digestive process. All protein has to be broken down to its amino acids, which is then absorbed. And then the body takes these amino acids and remanufactures all the different proteins that we find in our body, the digestive enzymes, etc. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, fats do not get broken up in the stomach. Carbohydrates do not get digested there. Most of that gets digested in the small intestine. The other thing that hydrochloric acid does is that it prevents a lot of bacteria from coming in from the, oh, I call it bad microorganisms, from gaining access to the small intestines and the colon, right? Okay. And that's a very important role that it does play, right? Because, but, you know, and that is how it changes the microbiome, right? So people who have um, ulcers and they're taking a lot of ulcer medication, which basically um, inhibits acid production, you let a lot of mycoplasmas and different types of bad bacteria access into the small intestine. Because the acid can't destroy it before it gets into the intestine. That's right. right. Okay. You know, so that, that's one of the reasons. Well, if you have ulcers, you, you need to take things to help acid release. It's a catch-22, because if you take it for too long, you change the microbiome, and that in itself leads to other issues. Okay. okay. Now, so the digestive process is very, very important, because if you don't digest properly, you don't get all of your raw, your raw materials, to which the body needs to remanufacture different proteins, etc. Okay. Uh, another thing that we need to chat a little bit about is that the we need to talk a little bit about the immunity right. because the gut is also one of the most important organs that controls immunity in the body. So the classic example would be food allergies. Right. Okay. 
there are many different reasons why people get food allergies. I, I won't be the f- to tell you that I have all the answers. I don't have all the answers, okay? But one of the things that we do know is that partially digested food can trigger food allergies because if the food gets down into the small intestine, there are things called pious patches which have um, white blood cells floating around there. And all it needs is to recognize some piece of food as, as being an allergen and voila, you get a food allergy response. Okay, mm-hmm. that's one of the pathways. Okay, so in order to mitigate that, sometimes if you take digestive enzymes with the food, it breaks it down to further so that whatever you end up with there is not recognized. Okay, mm-hmm. by the white cells, so you don't get the allergic response. So that's one way of trying to mitigate some food allergies. Now I said some. I can't. I doesn't do all. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want um, people phoning and say, hey, Dr. Chang said. So just realize I said it's partial. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that we need to chat about also in good digestion, remember we talked a little bit of microbiome. Nowadays, everything seems to be associated with the microbiome. The things autism is associated with the microbiome because the type of bacteria you have in the gut actually produces raw materials which the body absorbs and helps control a lot of different pathways in the body itself. So you need to have a good microbiome. Now, the problem with saying the word a good microbiome, it varies from place to place to place. Right. If I grew up in Mumbai, India, my microbiome is very different from the microbiome I have in Canada and the microbiome I have in Beijing, China, right, it's mm-hmm. very, very different. But after saying very, very different, there's so many different species of bacteria in the gut, right? There are some that are similar, and there are some that are very, very different. So, and people know that, for example, if I came from Mumbai and I grew up there, I can eat their street food without getting sick. Right. I guarantee you if you came and you lived in, you grew up there, you come and you lived in Canada for 10 years, you go back, I guarantee you if you try to eat the, seafood, the street food, you're probably going to get sick. Yep. Again, it's because your microbiome changes with time and with location. It's not necessary. it's going to be bad or good. Change. It's, changes happen. And the microbiome adapts to wherever you're living. Is it that the microbiome is adapting to the new types of foods that you're eating? It adapts to new types of food because the type of bacteria you get in, in your gut just also changes. Right. Now, so when, when people take things like probiotics and they take a one-strain probiotics, like everybody loves acidophilus because everybody talks about acidophilus till the cows come home, etc. So I think it's a wonder bacteria. But mm-hmm. the problem with it, I call good bacteria probiotics, there's nothing inherently good about them, okay? But what it is is that your body reacts, doesn't have the same bad reactions with, a, with the so-called good bacteria as compared to so the bad bacteria. Okay. Bad bacteria being a, a, a toxic strain of E. coli. Right. Okay, as an example. But the good bacteria, I guarantee you, if I was to go into your gut and pull out all of the bacteria strains you have in there and just stick in one so-called good bacteria, acidophilus, I guarantee you're going to be ill. Right? right, you're going to have all sorts of different illnesses. So basically, what I'm trying to say is that the microbiome has to be balanced. Too much of one thing is not good. So anybody who's thinking of taking a probiotic should look for multi-strain probiotics. 
It is not necessary that you need to take 500 billion per dose or, you know, more than Mary is not necessarily the case because if you're doing this on a day-in, day-out, day-in, day-out basis, right, you do not necessarily need to take huge quantities, right? Think of the days before probiotics, right? The people were getting their bacteria basically from the foods that they were eating, like from salads, right. from fruits and vegetables, etc., from picking up from the ground, etc., right? This is how they've got it in the past, right? I guarantee if, if anybody told you your food had 10 billion bacteria per gram, right? Mm-hmm. The government would clamp down on you like a, come down on you like a ton of bricks. Of course. You can't yeah. sell food that has 10 billion bacteria yeah. per gram. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right? So this is one of the things about bacteria, right? So you take a balanced amount of bacteria. Okay. You know, we have a little bit of time. Do you want to go through some, some you know, folk remedies and natural remedies to see if there's any efficacy? Oh, definitely. I mean, we, I'm just barely touching the digestive process and digestive in- issues like indigestion. There are people who have Crohn's disease that's classified as a digestive problem. Yep. There are people who have ulcerative colitis, which is similar to Crohn's, yep. right? In the same inflammatory bowel, it's all in that inflammatory bowel disease, right? Yep. And then you also have people who who have um, irritable bowel syndrome, yep. right? Which you hear more about because it's a, one of those things that people eat something, they get diarrhea, etc. Now those type of things are more amenable to um, treatment because by the alternative health people because really there's no drugs for that type of thing. Right. So if you have irritable bowel, one of the best things to do is the, the probiotics. But there are things like things like slippery elm, marshmallow root that works really, really well for these type of things. Okay. Right. And taking antioxidants also makes a huge difference. Right. So there's some things like L-glutamine, for example, that people will take because it has anti-inflammatory effects on the gut. Anything that you feed the pro- the good bacteria in the gut also helps. So. Um, hence, when people are using things like prebiotics. Right. Now, the concept of prebiotics, prebiotics is basically anything that bacteria, is, that bacteria eat. Right, you're priming the well. It's food for the yeah, probiotics, right? That's food for your probiotics. But it's also food for, for the bad bacteria also. You have to realize mm. that. Yep. Okay? Yep. But if you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, it's also a good thing because what the fruits and vegetables do, they supply the body with a lot of prebiotics. Right? Yep. Fruits and vegetables are also good because it provides the body with a lot of roughage. Now, roughage is good because one of the things that roughage does, it, causes, it gives you a ball movement, a more frequent ball movement. Now, what people don't realize is that if you're ingesting food, you're also ingesting things like toxins, etc. The longer this stuff sits in the, in the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract, more of this toxins get absorbed. So, for example, if, if you have a bowel movement once every two days, during that two days, whatever toxins are in there gets a better chance of being absorbed by the body. Right. Okay? Now, if you take a lot of roughage, you have a bowel movement once a day. Well, you know what? All that stuff goes out in once a day. So you have a 24-hour window of less contact, so less of that gets absorbed. Right? Yeah. So your toxin load on your body also decreases. This is why it's a good thing to take some fiber. If you're not getting enough fiber in your food, take some fiber also in, in addition. Makes perfect sense. Gordon, I want to talk to you about this like all day. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So will you come back again and talk about some of this stuff? Definitely. Fanta- we'll do this again. Fantastic. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. 
We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss five principles supporting successful and sustainable weight loss on The Tonic. You're a genuine health enthusiast listening to this show today. And Activation Products is your dream come true when it comes to living in a perfectly healthy body. Reclaim your health, cleanse your body, and extend your life. Activation makes all this possible by providing you with the best products for your best health. Activation products can elevate your whole body's health in ways you had no idea were possible. No matter how old or how young you are, it's their mission to deliver to you the most efficacious health products available in the world today. Treat yourself now and find out what it's like to live in a perfectly healthy body, making every day a joy to be alive. Go to activationproducts.com and start your journey on reclaiming your health. Are you frustrated by stubborn weight loss? Feeling stuck in a cycle of dieting and deprivation? Are you sick and tired of how much mental time and energy this issue takes up in your life? Dr. Cher Beauvais understands because at age 50, she was there too. Now she runs supervised weight loss programs across Canada based on the research and discoveries that led to her weight loss breakthrough. She's helped thousands of Canadians over age 40 to lose their weight and maintain it so they can have an enjoyable lifestyle once again. See if her approach is right for you by booking a 15-minute assessment call with Dr. Beauvais. Use the link on her website, drsherbovay.com. That's D-R-S-H-E-R-B-O-V-A-Y.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Dr. Cher Beauvais runs a successful national weight loss and lifestyle company. Her supervised programs are designed specifically to help people over the age of 40 struggling to lose body fat and keep it off with ease, all while achieving their optimal lifestyle. Her approach is based on her research and personal discovery after her own struggles at age 50 with weight gain. With over 30 years of experience in the health field as a chiropractor, along with the additional certifications she holds from the Harvard Medical School's Institute of Lifestyle Medicine. To learn more about Dr. Beauvais and her programs, you can always visit her website, drsherbeauvais.com, and Cher spelled S-H-E-R. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you again, Jamie. So one of the things I know, because mm-hmm. I've struggled with weight loss my entire life, is um, there's two issues. There's the actual weight loss and the sustainability, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So why do you think, I have my own ideas, but why do you think people have such a hard time maintaining their weight after they lose it. Yes, I always call this the kind of the holy grail of weight loss. I mean, the studies, there's, there was one done a while ago, American Journal of Nutrition about basically, you know, the two-year mark, 50% have gained weight and in five years, 80%. So that's not great return on investment in terms of the time and effort. Um, and how I like to view it is changing perspective. A lot of people, when they're looking to lose weight, they're looking, okay, how, what's going to get the weight off? Shift the perspective. Think longer term. I use the term body freedom is in my description with my clients. It's like, think about what's going to give you your results, so freedom in your body, but also what's going to give you freedom in your mindset, meaning you're not going to be micromanaging your food for the rest of your life in order to maintain. Also, uh, you're getting freedom in your mindset in terms of your relationship with food. So you, you can have indulgences, but you're mindfully choosing them. It's not something else that's driving you. And then freedom in your lifestyle. What's going to work? So look at a weight loss approach going, okay, how's this going to transition into giving me actual body freedom, not just a number on the scale. That makes sense. 
Hmm. What does one need to do to improve their success at keeping weight off long term and achieve this concept of body freedom? Yeah. Over the years, I've put together, I would call five key principles. So these are sort of just your generic principles, universal laws that one can apply. Again, shifting perspectives so people can look as, you know, if we were going to talk about these things now, making sure when they're looking at an approach for weight loss or if they're doing it, are they incorporating all these five principles? And if not, what do they need to start incorporating so they are setting themselves up to keep the weight off? Okay, so what is the first principle? Well, the first principle is really having a game plan. Okay. Which may sound kind of obvious, but a lot of people, when they approach weight loss, first of all, they may be very, I'll call it loosey-goosey. Oh, I'll just exercise more, cut down, cut my carbs. And there aren't clear-cut strategies. So having clarity, simplicity, structure. And the reason why this is important because it's actually going to contribute to one of the other principles we'll talk about, but also what it's doing that helps you're engaging that prefrontal cortex of your brain. And that helps to override the impulsive behaviors, right? So it's setting yourself up to be able to manage long-term. It's giving the structure, the clarity. Also making sure that the approach they're using is right for their body. Some people, certain strategies are going to work better. There's a great article just in the Journal of Nutrition about the fact some people, they're prone, their fat metabolism is off. They accumulate fat. How they do it is going to be different. So what's going to work for your body so you can lose it and keep it off? And then also what's going to work for your just clarity and structure? Okay. So that's the first principle. What comes next? This is much more mindset-based. I always look at things from a body and mind standpoint. Mm -hmm. This is your why. This is why you want to lose weight. Think of this as your lighthouse. This is your guiding force. (laughs) It's going to keep you going in the right direction. But that why needs to transition into maintaining because people can have maybe a short-term kind of why and it's exciting. But when you're just maintaining weight, there's nothing exciting happening. You're maintaining. It's like me with my garden. I get very excited about planting a new garden. I'm horrible at maintaining it. I forget to water it, weed it, all that, right? So having that maintenance, that the reason why you want to do it needs to connect to things that are deeper for you, more meaningful, more fulfilling, so that you're still motivated and inspired to continue to continue with those healthy habits to maintain the weight. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's more of a bigger picture thought, right? Like instead of saying I'm losing weight because I'm going to have pictures taken of me at an upcoming event, like a wedding or something, Mm. right? A lot of people don't want to carry the extra weight if if they're being noticed or in public. That's a short-term goal, but a long-term goal is something like, "Mm, I want to keep the weight down because I want to be more active and spend time with my kids or my grandkids or my new partner or whatever, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really saying that. So just simply ask themselves or when they're trying to lose weight with the reason why saying, okay, is this a good enough reason that I'd want to keep doing this? If not, the immediate gratification of certain foods and old habits are going to rise to the forefront again. So we've established that the why is important, but let's get to the nuts and bolts and the practicality of doing it. Where do we go from there? Yeah, so this uh, third principle, I call this creating the sustainable habits or routines. And it's not very exciting, right? It's kind of humdrum, boring, really. But I'll tell you, this is like very important because this is where you're going to, this is how you lose weight looking at it. Is this something that's going to transition into habits and routines that you can maintain for life? Ideally, you don't really want to be super strict for all your life. That is an unsustainable outcome to look for. Again, in the spirit of body freedom, mindset freedom and all that. So you want to be able to have it where you can do, I call it 80-20. 
you're losing weight in such a way that you're building a foundation of healthy eating habits. You're building the routines so that 80% of that, when you get to maintenance, you can do it. You don't have to think about it. That's freedom in your mindset. You, and then you can have those indulgences and you'll learn what your limits are. But knowing you can do that means you're much more likely to maintain than micromanaging your food for the rest of your life just to maintain weight. That's one is setting themselves up for failure. For me, I have to put myself in a place where I can imagine what the result is in a positive way. So for mm. example, uh, you know, I may despise doing a particular workout, right? But mm-hmm. I know how I'm going to feel after. And I keep having to remind myself. And I, I think when I'm trying to lose weight, it's the same sort of thing. Whatever it is you're foregoing, whether it's alcohol or deciding mm-hmm. not to have dessert or eating after a certain time of day, you also have to keep in mind, okay, so where am I going to be if I do all this? Because if you can't conceptualize that, then it's just work. It's just work that you're doing and not even getting paid for, right? So Yeah. And that reward needs to be extremely fulfilling in, right. the, in the bigger picture. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, part of the problem I think for people is, you know, they set up these routines, they do these things, and then everything sort of conspires against them. There's events <laughs> that come up that sort of throw them off. And I know for myself, like, you know, those events occur and there's nothing you can do about them. But how do we make sure that they don't overwhelm our overall plan and, and you know, create much more weight loss than is expected. Right. Yeah. So the weight gain, sorry. Weight gain. Yeah, no. Yeah. I call this fourth principle is the course correction. Again, it comes back to structure and strategy. So first of all, you've got the foundation, 80, 20, you can have the indulgences. That's great. That's sustainable. Then life throws curves. And maybe for a good reason. Maybe it's, I'm doing a trip to Italy and I want to eat all that stuff. Well, if I'm going to Italy, I'm eating, right? Like (laughs) there's really no point to go to Italy if you're not going to eat. And you know what? We should be able to do that. Of course. But knowing Having an approach and structure and and know exactly what you need to do in order to be able to lose the weight when you come back. It's a mindset shift. You're going back and putting on your losing weight hat again. You know what you need to do. And again, this this speaks to the original approach you use. Is it going to transition? Is it going to give you the tools and strategies that you can implement them on an as-need basis? That's why, I mean, I use a lot of intermittent fasting in my programs. It's amazing for that reason. And that's true freedom because then knowing I can actively, you know, partake of this mindfully when it's mindful as opposed to mindless eating, which is a different discussion, but mindfully overindulge knowing I know what I need to do. And it's very liberating. So then you can enjoy it. You know, I know a lot of people who uh, try intermittent fasting. It's a different sort of discipline. It's a discipline, right? Because mm-hmm. it's all about timing your eating. And there's different ways of going about it. You can go certain days on, certain days off. But most people do it. They don't eat. They don't eat until a certain period and or they don't eat after a certain time of day. They sort of condense all their eating to a narrower window. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself, for example, if you're traveling, could be a challenge, right? Because even with time changes, you know, like you want to have meals, you want to go out, you want to celebrate when everybody else is except you're on this timetable. So that that can be a bit tricky too, though, right? Right, yeah. I mean, and that's where you want to, you know, to know when you can do that. And if you can't, but you know how to correct. And the other part I'll say just briefly about that course correction is don't be afraid of the scale. This is probably the biggest thing I see. People start avoiding it when they've gained. And because of the guilt, because of the shame, they don't want to face it. The best thing you can do, it's like rip off the bandit, just step on the scale. It's a number. And I'm not saying this lightly. I do understand for people, it's going to be a very emotional thing. But it's like if you went on a trip and you thought maybe you overspent, would you just not look at your bank account or would you look at it and kind of go, where am I at? Do I need to go rebudget or what? It is actually no different. It's a number. It's an emotionally charged number, but avoiding it makes it so much worse. You know, I either refuse to look at the scale. I'm terrible. I either refuse to look (laughs) at the scale or I'm obsessively on the scale five times a day. 
you know, when I'm, when I'm in my mode where I have to, where I feel like I have to lose the weight and I'm actively trying to do it, you know, after every meal, my wife says, what are you doing? Like, you know, like once a week, once a, once every two or three days, what are you doing? I I understand that compunction. I do. I get it. I do. We have time for one last question. And Mm -hmm. that is how does this all work over the long term and and still people to live like a real life? Yeah. Well, and this brings it to the fifth principle. And really, it is a learned process, right? It's learning the art of the flexibility. Again, having an approach, the game plan that's going to give you some structure that will allow you to create the sustainable habits. You've got this base, this 80-20, a little flexibility with that, having the course correction. So you're learning about your body. You're learning about your mindset. You're facing your truths, understanding your vulnerabilities around food, potentially. And that is what allows you to find that fine balance of the art of flexibility. One of my favorite books I recommend to people as part of their maintenance is Why French Women Don't Get Fat. Okay, I hate the title of the book, but the concept is food is pleasurable. We should be able to embrace it, you know, and it doesn't need to be our enemy. And the more you can embrace it within reason, you have that you're satisfied. It makes life more interesting and fun, but you found that balance of the flexibility. So... Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, fun as always. (laughs) That was Dr. Cher Beauvais. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss preserving the harvest on the tonic. Is joint pain keeping you from enjoying your favorite activities? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's reducing acute pain and chronic inflammation or rebuilding worn down cartilage, discover joint pain relief, Inflaheal Plus and Chondroitin Glucosamine from New Roots Herbal. Only the highest quality natural ingredients tested for purity and potency in an ISO accredited lab. Available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. (sighs) Does the fear of losing control keep you awake at night? Enjoy better sleep on something you can control. The Supreme Adjustable Bed by Ultramatic. Customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar positions with push-button control for relief of back pain, arthritis, and sleep apnea. The Supreme. Take back control of your life. Try Ultramatic's Supreme Adjustable Bed for 100 nights, risk-free. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Marilyn Tanner Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, Jamie. Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. So, you know that I grow stuff in my backyard because we've discussed that. Yes. And You're lots like a regular gardener. I am. I'm like a regular gardener. And so, you know, me like other people, sometimes we have extra stuff 
that we can't eat in the moment. And, you know, ideally you want to eat everything when it's fresh off the vine, off the stem, et cetera, et cetera. But there are ways to preserve those fruits and vegetables without actually, quote unquote, making preserves, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. I don't make preserves and I don't grow anything. I have the opposite of a green thumb. What is that called? A brown thumb. A brown thumb. That's me. Okay. So I buy things when they're cheaper in the grocery store and I preserve those because I haven't had any, you know, um, gifts from you yet. So That's true. I'm waiting. Okay. Um, Fair enough. I guess your kale is coming into season. My kale is amazing. We have eight kale plants. We have enough to make like salads like every single week over and over and over again. So, so what are you doing with your kale right now? I just said we're making salads over and over and oh, over Oh, okay, but other than that. <laughs> I don't know. Tell me, what should okay. I do with it? Great. Let's talk kale. We could talk beet greens, which are in season right now. Yep. And we could talk sort of anything hearty green, okay. Okay, which are in season right now this month. So what I like to do, I take the kale, mm-hmm. I wash it, I salad spin it. You could chop it first or not salad spin it like in a spinner, yep. then put it on towels, like just kitchen towels on your counter, let it dry for several hours, air dry for several hours, even though you've spun it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I do the same thing with beet greens and we'll get into that in a second. And then I either chop it before I dry it or chop it after, it doesn't matter. And then I flash freeze it on cookie sheets. So let's just talk about flash freezing and what that is for the moment. Okay. Yep. So flash freezing is freezing something in one layer on, let's say, a, some sort of sheet or cookie sheet or tray. I usually line that tray with parchment paper so that it doesn't stick to the tray once it's frozen. And then when the item is frozen, when the vegetable or fruit is frozen, you throw all that into a Ziploc bag, a zip top bag. I've never done that because I assumed that the freezers that most people have are not cold enough to actually bring the fruit or vegetable up to or down to temperature without it sort of getting frostbitten? It gets a little bit frostbitten, but it's still better than throwing all your kale out. True. True. Right. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not as good as buying, you know, something that's been frozen at a lower temperature. You know, one of those, you know, kale or spinach that you could buy in a bag frozen at a much lower temperature. But this is pretty good, especially if you're eating it within three months. Okay. Okay, so that's another thing you need to remember. Don't be flash freezing things and using it a year later. Okay, so three months should be your rule of thumb for a vegetable. So do you have a little permanent marker that you mark your freezer bags with? Yeah, so then you take the permanent marker and you write on it frozen on and the date you froze it on. And what I do with it, you could either then saute it into eggs or throw it into soups directly. It doesn't need to be cooked first or use it for anything that's going to be cooked. Obviously, it's not going to be great fresh, right? So some people see me in the grocery store and I'm buying beets. Okay, let's just talk about beets for a second because they're in season. You'll notice that you could buy beets that are loose or you could buy beets that are on the bunch. The difference between the two of them is that the beets on the bunch are fresher than the loose beets. That's not to say that the loose beets aren't great. They are. But if they were super fresh, they would still have the greens on them. The beets are still good when the greens go bad. Now, a lot of people will tear the greens off and leave them in the grocery store because it's bulky, and then they have to wash them. And what do they do with the beet greens? Beet greens are fabulous. So when you buy your beets, try to buy the beets on the bunch, take the beet greens, wash them, spin them, lay them on the counter, and either cook them 
and cook, just saute them in a little bit of oil, a sprinkle of salt, and you'll have beautiful sautéed greens. You could flash freeze the sautéed greens, or you could flash freeze the uncooked beet greens. And what I do, especially every single Sunday, I do a little meal prepping. Mm-hmm. So I'll take my kale or spinach or beet greens, and I'll frozen, and I'll sauté them, and then I will put them into muffin tins that are sprayed, and then pour some eggs, like beaten eggs, on them, and I'll have muffin tin frittatas for the week. Nice. Yeah. So that's a, it's just a great way of using. It's another great way of using up herbs that are going bad. So you could, you know, saute them up with your greens and make muffin tin frittatas with them, and then you've sort of rescued them for an extra week. Okay, other than flash freezing, what other methods do you okay. use to preserve? So one of my favorite methods, but it's not good for everything, is something called confit. Yep. Okay? So to confit something, you need to boil that vegetable or fruit, usually vegetable, in oil. Okay? And you could either do this in the oven or you could do it on the stovetop. My favorite thing to do is garlic confit. Yeah. So I take a whole load of peeled garlic cloves. So yes. these, this time it's peeled. And you must submerge them in oil, so it's better to use something with a narrower diameter at the bottom, so you don't have to use so much oil. And I just cook them in my oven covered, so usually I cover it with tin foil, on low heat, 300 degrees, for two to three hours. And you'll see that the oil will start to bubble, and the garlic will turn a beautiful golden brown. And then you could put it into a little jar in your fridge, and you'll have garlic confit for multiple purposes, including, you know, anytime you need a clove of garlic that's minced, just instead use the garlic confit, include the oil in there, and then you don't even have to add oil to your pan. So use a little of the garlic confit oil plus the garlic, and you've saved yourself from buying garlic for a little while. Yeah, we actually confit garlic all the time, yeah. and it is and incredibly handy. Right yeah. Do you boil it on the stovetop or you no, put it in the oven? In the oven. Yeah. Usually with some herbs. So I like oh, doing, yeah. we grow oregano. So usually oregano goes in there or maybe some bay leaves or maybe some thyme. Uh, yeah. Basil doesn't work so well. but No, uh, basil does not work. But rosemary is nice too. It is. And we've done yeah. that too. So another little tip for herbs that are drier, for instance, oregano, thyme, and rosemary. Mm-hmm. So you know you buy a bunch of rosemary, you buy a bunch of thyme, and you need like two or three sprigs. And then what are you going to do with the rest of it? Okay. Yep. So if you cook a lot, what you could do is you wrap it in paper towel and then put it into the fridge and it'll last, you know, two to three weeks. But if you don't use it even in two to three weeks, what I like to do is I take the rosemary thyme or oregano and I put it on the countertop on a dish or a plate or whatever mm-hmm. on paper towel and then I let it dry. So you remember in the old days when we used to dry roses, kind of like that. And then you make your own dried herb then dry rosemary thyme or oregano, and you put it into a semi-open Ziploc bag, so don't close it completely. And anytime you need dried rosemary, you have your own that you dried yourself. So do you have a dehydrator or are you using the oven? No, no, no. Just leave it on the counter. Ah, okay. For that. Okay. You don't need a dehydrator or an oven for that. But speaking of dehydrating without a dehydrator, that's very easy. And I do that with apricots. Or, you know, strawberries are very good. Mm -hmm. Tomatoes are very good. So you crank up your oven to a simple 300 degrees Fahrenheit. You place the vegetable or fruit, seasoned or not seasoned, on a parchment-lined cookie sheet. And you slow roast or dehydrate for two to four hours 
until depending on how much liquid is in the actual fruit or vegetable until the fruit or vegetable is sufficiently dehydrated. Do you have the fan on when you're doing that? Does it make a difference? Whether it does make a difference. If you could put the fan on, it's even better because you'll see there's a ton of moisture. If you're doing one cookie sheet full of whatever, like the tomatoes or yep. the apricots or the strawberries, it doesn't matter. But if you're doing multiple sheets, like for instance, last month when the tomatoes were in the height of season, yep. I bought a half a bushel yep. from my local green grocer. Yep. I cut them in half, and everybody should take notes and remember this for next September. So you cut them in half, and I lightly oiled them, very, very lightly sprinkled them with a bit of sugar, the open cut side, and sprinkled them with some thyme and chopped garlic, okay, or even garlic confit, if you have that. Mm -hmm. And I put them on a cookie sheet and dehydrated them or slow roasted them, you could call it slow roasted, 300 degrees, and it takes about three and a half to four hours. And then you have like sort of almost leathery, but not really leathery tomatoes. So they're slow roasted tomatoes. And I love those. If you've ever had a slow roasted tomato caprese salad, so forget the fresh tomatoes now that we're, you know, in the deep of fall, try doing a caprese salad with dehydrated tomatoes or slow roasted tomatoes, buffalo mozzarella or even burrata and some basil or some fresh other herbs. And it's delicious. I agree with you with the dehydrating. The only thing is if you've never done it before, you're going to be surprised, a little disappointed with the color. Tomatoes turn out fine, but like, for example, when you were referencing apricots or something like that. Yeah, they turn black. They don't turn a color that you think of when you buy them in the store because they've True. been stabilized and preserved with chemicals. So right. that's just a heads up. It doesn't mean you failed. It just means you got to get used to those colors if you're going to be doing the oven drying. Right. But I will tell you, Jamie, these apricots or let's say strawberries yeah. or even tomatoes, they're not sitting in the pantry after. Oh, no, no. They get eaten. I know. I get they it. Get, no, no, no. It's not just that. If you make a lot of them, they go into the freezer. They're not dehydrated enough to live in the pantry. Gotcha. And also, they're not covered with acids and other stabilizers, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So you must freeze them. But if you want a great recipe for slow-roasted tomatoes, just go on my website. It's fantastic. It's something I do all the time. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. What would you like to discuss next month? I think we're going to discuss apples. Ooh, all right. That was Carolyn Tanner Cohen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss indoor forced flowers on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. 
Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed. She's passionate about the connection between human health and nature and believes that regenerative gardens can help create food security and broaden ecological diversity. Melissa has been featured on Farmer's Footprint in Toronto Life and has been a guest speaker at Allen Gardens and has been a well-received garden expert online and in person. For more information, visit thegoodseedto.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Thanks, Jamie. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing well. So we're going to talk about something that, you know, I'm a know-it-all, but I have to acknowledge that I don't know anything about this topic. So I'm like, we're talking, let's start at the beginning. What does it mean to force flowers and why would we ever do that? Well, that's a great question. So this time of year, we are all craving some green, some blooms, you know, everything in our gardens pretty much dormant. And so it's great to indoors have something that is going to stimulate our senses and bring us back to that connection with nature. And we see a lot of indoor potted plants this type of year, like poinsettias, but why not grow your own? And so I'm talking about doing that at home, from the comfort of your home, and pretty effortlessly. Well, that sounds like a plan. And I agree with you. It's always nice to have bring the green indoors. So what type of plants are we talking about that we would use? Sure. So today I really wanted to talk to you about two different types of bulbs that can be forced indoors. And one you might be familiar with, and that's amaryllis. Mm -hmm. And the other one is called paperwhites. Okay. So for those who don't know, can you kind of describe what an amaryllis is? Yeah, let's break it down. So an amaryllis is a tropical flower. And in North America, you would have to be in very southern regions like Florida or California to be planting it outdoors. It's mostly tropical and indigenous to like South America, South Africa, places like that. Mm -hmm. But it's a large bulb that produces stalk that is a thick green stalk. And on top of it is sort of two to four brightly colored blooms in the pink and red and white hues, almost a bit like a lily. Okay. Paper whites are smaller bulbs and they're part of the narcissist family, which is the same family as daffodils. And they produce sort of these prolific, beautiful, ethereal white flowers. Okay. So now that we know what kind of flowers we're talking about, how do we go about it? What's the timeline? Okay. So let's break it down. Let's start with amaryllis. So amaryllis, because they are a larger bulb, we're going to want to give them a good three to four weeks to start them indoors before we have those sort of show-stopping flowers. So plan ahead if you're trying to have that on a holiday table make sure you're starting it at least three to four weeks beforehand. Mm -hmm. And paper whites take about two to three weeks. So timelines, that's what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And you can also get really savvy and do sort of succession planting with them. So start a couple of bulbs every week for a few weeks. And that guarantees you a lot of different blooms sort of timed over a couple of week period. Does that make sense? It does. So when we talk about the blooms, how long will these plants 
blooms exist such that you'd want to look at them and enjoy them? Yeah, up to two weeks, actually. Okay. All right. So now we know how to work backwards, which is always the best yeah. way, right? So if we're aiming yeah. to bring them as a gift or have them for the holidays, then we can sort of time it out, right? Yeah, they're a great housewarming gift. Okay. So what do you need, obviously, in addition to the to the bulbs? What else would you need to execute this? Okay. So that's a great question. So here's the really neat thing about these bulbs. They can be grown in sort of a traditional potting soil, but they can also be grown using just pebbles and water. Hmm. So let's break that down because there's sort of two different processes there. So the first thing, if you want to use soil or a soilless mix, you're going to want to buy a pot that has good drainage. So something that has a nice sized hole in the bottom. And I suggest one that has a dish under it because, you know, the last thing you want to do is gift something to someone that then leaks all over their nice coffee table. Yeah, particularly Uh, if there's a hole in the bottom, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So you want a vessel that is a good bit larger than the bulb you purchase. So if you are purchasing one of the larger amaryllis bulbs, just be mindful that you're going to get sort of a larger pot. Okay. So for the amaryllis in the soil, you're going to fill it up with a soilless mix or a potting mix. The bulb is going to give nestled in there probably about three quarters of the weight down. And you're going to give it a good water, leave it somewhere warm and sort of set it and forget it until it starts to grow. And once it starts to grow, you're going to water it sparingly and give it some good sunlight. How many bulbs would you put in the pot? For the amaryllis? Just one. Just one? Okay. It'll be a little bit different when we get to paper whites. So now let's conversely talk about growing them in pebbles and why we would want to do that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us have sitting around these beautiful glass vases. They're quite deep. And that actually makes a great receptacle to grow in because you can see the root structures growing as your bulb sort of matures. Right. So for that, you're going to grab some smaller pebbles, river rock, give it a good wash, good three-inch layer in the bottom of the vase, nestle the bulb in there, and then you're going to want to fill water up to the root systems, but not to the bulb. Okay. And you're going to want to maintain those water levels, and lo and behold, the bulb will grow just fine and bloom just fine. So is the bulb uncovered? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's naked. All right. Because it's not in soil, do you have to put any nutrients into the pebbles? No, you don't actually. It just magically grows on its own. All of the nutrients and energy in that bulb have been stored for when the leaves photosynthesized Got it. the previous blooming time. Cool. Super cool. Now for paper whites, these bulbs are much smaller and same sort of premise applies how we talked about growing them in soil or with stone, but you want to cluster these together And if you are growing them in pebbles, I suggest a taller vase because they do tend to get a little bit floppy. Are you talking about the growth, the leaves or? Mm -hmm, The stems and the leaves. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now here are a couple of other tips for growing these bulbs. Number one, if you are fragrance sensitive, paper whites do give off a fairly strong odor. Okay. Secondly, the amaryllis stem and flowers are large in comparison to the size of the bulb that they grow from. And when you're growing them, you're going to want to turn your potted plant that's growing at like a 90 degree quarter inch or quarter turn once a day because they have been known to sort of fall out or fall over and crash down. Oh, trying to find the sun, you mean? Yeah. Got it. Okay. So do you need to put like some sort of brace or like bamboo stick to keep it erect or are the stems strong enough to support these flowers? 
they're totally strong enough to support the flower, but you do need to watch that they aren't curving and leaning in one direction. Got it. Where do you get your bulbs when you're planting these? That's a great question. So amaryllis and paper whites are now pretty prevalent even in grocery store floral sort of sections. But for those really cool specialty ones, uh, any reputable nursery starting end of November uh, should have them. Okay. Will that give you enough time to plant it? I suppose it would Mm because you said it's a matter of weeks. So if you get right on it, if you go in November, at the end of November, then you should be able to find all this and, and get it done for the holiday season, I would think. Yeah. Definitely. And look for bulbs that look big, that are firm to the touch, nothing soggy, nothing mushy. Okay. If you don't have a sunny window, can you still do all this or is it kind of, would you need a special light? You can. It just may take you a little longer to get those blooms. Okay. And what do you do with these plants? Like, are they forever indoor plants? (laughs) That's a great question. So, People ask me quite often, oh, can I just take that amaryllis bulb and then plant it in my garden in the summer? And the short answer is, sure, you probably could save the bulbs and go through the whole process that they need for you to keep them season over season. But honestly, between you and me, life's too short. (laughs) Throw them in the compost, throw them in the leaf waste bag. Okay. Buy new ones next year. Oh, so once they bloom, they're done? Like they They're done. Even if you're keeping them inside? Mm-hmm. Okay. Think about like a tulip or a daffodil. It just blooms that once. Right. And then is dormant for the rest of the season. No, I get that. But you wouldn't dig up your tulips because they come back the next year, right? That's right. But because these are tropical, they're not suited for us to take them out and plant them in our gardens. Got it. Okay. Are there any other varietals that work well as, as forced flowers that you might recommend? So people do force the traditional fall bulbs like tulips, daffodils, hyacinths. All of these do require a 10 to 12 week sort of dormancy and cool temperature cycle. And so sometimes those are a little bit harder to force at this time of year because we've not got that time elapsed. Got it. So I am a big proponent of the amaryllis and definitely try the paper whites. They're beautiful white. They make for incredible holiday decor and plant lots, multiples, because on a nice long table, it just looks spectacular. Great idea. I have one last question for you. time for one last question. And that is when you're giving it as a gift, is there any advice you should tell the people that you're giving it to in terms of maintaining it and keeping the bloom nice? Yeah, I would definitely give them a little handwritten note Instruct them to water, as we just talked about, sort of sparsely, or if they're in rocks, just maintain that water level. And then the quarter turn for the amaryllis every day. And I think you've got the perfect host or hostess gift. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. What would you like to discuss next month? Thanks for having me, Jamie. I would love to talk garden planning, and I know it seems early, but it's not. Never too late. That was Melissa Cameron. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Cher Beauvais, Carolyn Tanner-Cohen, and Melissa Cameron. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks in over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. 
If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.